Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh Berman. And I'm Kim Lee. And each episode of Book Music, we, what we do is we focus on a specific book about music. It could be a music biography, it could be a memoir from a musician, or it could be a book about music history, or it could be even a fictional character who's a musician or a composer. It could be anything as long as it deals with music, and that is what mu book music does. That's what we do. That is our mission. Is that correct, Kimley? I think you've said that very succinctly. I've been saying this for about 50 times now, so <laughs> I'm still practicing. There's always new listeners. So today, we're going to cover a book. If this even, be, even if you can call this a book, it's something beyond a book, I feel. I feel this is probably the most ultimate book of all books we have talked about so far. <laughs> and therefore, this is a very important episode of book, book music. The it's heavy, is, physically. Well, right heavy. now, I, I'm, I, with my left hand, I'm lifting this book. And I need my other hand to sort of, you know, make it balance perfectly right. It's called Excavate. Excavate the wonderful and frightening world of the fall. Edited by Tessa Norton and Bob Stanley. With a preface by Grant Showbiz, that's a good name, right? Grant Showbiz. I love that name, yes. <laughs> yes. And it was a forward by uh, the choreographer and dancer, Michael Clark. And today we have a special guest, don't we, Kimley? Yes, we do. We have Dave Ehrlich. And Dave Ehrlich is, to me at least, maybe not to himself, but to <laughs> me, he is probably the number one fan of The Fall. So, Dave, welcome to Book Music. I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you so much, Tosh and Kimley. Thanks for having me. Because we need fans actually on the show. Well, for the show, of course, as well. But we actually need to hear the fans' voice about some of the books we talk about. <laughs> and you know, the fall is not for amateurs. It's not. It's. It's. You definitely. You know. You want a good driver. <laughs> Driving sure. subject matter of a fall to the to the to the masses. I'm happy to try and be your tour guide today. Yes, so me and Kimley are in the back seat, giggling, okay. and you're driving, and you're you have a little microphone on your you know like a boy band thing. Yeah, you're driving and exactly. You're, I have a headset on, so <laughs> so I'm, you half, I'm halfway there. So you read this book, Excavate. Yes. I have. You have to sort of yell it out, right? Because the title has a uh, you know a point. Exclamation! Yeah. It does have an exclamation point. So yeah, you def you definitely want to emphasize that when you pronounce the title. Yes. And it it is an action verb. So I mean, to me, that the act of reading this book is yes. is indeed excavating. And it is and it is about the wonderful and frightening world of the fall. But it's not a biography on the fall. Nope. And and the leading member of the fall, or what we consider the fall, is usually Mark E. Smith. And it's not a biography on Mark E. Smith at all. Um, well, first of all, we should talk about what the, who the fall is. Um, Dave, why are you a fan of the fall? Or why are you even deadly obsessed with this band? Deadly obsessed. Yeah. I thought you may ask that. <clears throat> I'll give a little background. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Um, I kind of came of musical age in the mid-'80s. And I just had a natural attraction to anything British. Yes. Um, 
as a lot of Southern Californians do. Yes. Um, I think definitely my entry points into like British post-punk or, you know, new wave is a weird term to use here, but yeah. you know, were things like I was very much into the Smiths and the cure. Yeah. Um, a lot of Mancunian bands. I love the Buzzcocks and Joy Division. Yes. And I think that the fall kind of popped up on my radar um, they had signed, and I'll talk more about this because it's my favorite period of theirs, but they signed to Beggar's Banquet um, mm -hmm. in the sort of mid-80s. And Beggar's released a series of compilations uh, in the U.S. where they mm -hmm. kind of gathered a bunch of bands together. And that was pretty much the first time I heard The Fall. Uh, it was the track Spoilt Victorian Child, which is mm -hmm. on This Nation Saving Grace from 1985. And that's my very favorite Fall record. Ah. Not, to, not to mention... My very favorite record by anybody um wow. it of course sort of looms over everything in my world i think and the song blew me away and it was also in the company of a lot of bands that didn't sound like the fall um yeah. to give you an idea other bands on this compilation were gene loves jezebel uh -huh. um not similar to the fall very much no, no, <laughs> um, who else who else was on this the bolshoi the icicle works um there's a fair share of sort of gothiness uh -huh. and I just felt like the fall stuck out like a sore thumb on this compilation and especially the way that spoiled Victorian child sounded. And uh -huh. I just became fascinated. Um, from there I was doing like college music journalism kind of in a couple of years from then and uh -huh. the fall were kind of always in the back of my, back of my mind. Uh -huh. And I was sent a copy of, um, I feel like it was Ben Sinister 1986. Uh -huh was um or it was called in the u.s domesday triad uh -huh. um i'm getting the title a little mutilated here but the, the u.s got a slightly different version of the u.s uh, the uk ben sinister record and it had a couple b-sides or a-sides kind of omitted in the way that u.s labels would change uh -huh. it up and hearing that record in full um was my first full-length introduction to the band and it just honestly was like nothing i'd ever heard um I think it fit into post-punk of the time, uh -huh. but his voice was so different. The way the lyrics were delivered were so different. Um, and just, I guess, just the atmosphere and the world that they created sonically and lyrically uh -huh. was just kind of blew my mind. Um, and they be rapidly became just an incredible obsession. Mm -hmm. Now, were you familiar with the other bands of the era from Manchester? Joy Division, mm -hmm. Cox Magazine, yeah, before yeah. the fall? Yeah, definitely. And um, I think the fall were sort of on my radar, not only because of that Beggar's Banquet comp, mm. um, which I think it was called Now That's What I Call Music. I, I don't, don't, I can't swear on that. But um, I also had friends that loved Buzzcocks and the Smiths, and we all liked all these Manchester bands. And I remember a friend having, this is great, a picture of Marky e. Smith in his locker in high school. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. like a pinup from Smash Hits or something. <laughs> and, and he was like, he was like shouting into a megaphone. And um, that was sort of my image of them was this like twisted faced guy with this flopsy haircut screaming into a megaphone. And I was like, what, what world is this? Who is this? <laughs> and, 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 and they didn't have, I was into the, you know, not that the cure from Manchester, they're not, but I, you know, I liked things like Bauhaus and Susie and the cure as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was, I don't want to say a Gothic element to the fall. I think that there's a spooky element and we'll talk about this probably later. Yeah. There, there is definitely a horror element to them yeah. that appeals to me. But just the more I sort of delved into their dark, twisted, weird, murky sound, just it just it just spoke to me in a way that like a lot of those other bands of the era and the ilk didn't. Uh huh. Uh -huh. 
and then I feel also feel like being a huge Smiths fan as they dissolved uh-huh. in 87. Um, I sort of got into the wedding present, if you know them, another kind uh-huh. of northern, great northern English guitar band, much more emotional, and their songs are kind of about relationships and rows and arguments. But the fall are not about that. The fall are coming from a completely different world where you don't know what the songs are about. You don't know no. what universe they're coming out of. And that just that just hooked me right in. Right. They, they, they were so different. My, my favorite fall album is the same as yours. I would think so because of the, I think the hookiness and the riffage and the, yes. the swagger. I want to definitely want to talk more about that period. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it is, is due to my total love of Brick Smith, his wife at the time. Yes. And kind of what she brought to the band. But, you know, there's a million other intuitions of the fall to talk about. And there's a lot of other sounds and eras and phases that are very different than that mid-80s period. Yeah. As I started to move backwards and listen to the earlier stuff, I was just struck by also how different that was, even from five years earlier, how different they sounded mm-hmm. from the mid-80s. But there's still a consistency, I think, to them. It's when I, because I'm still pretty new to them. I've been working my way through their albums. I haven't listened to all of them, but I was mostly, you know, starting with the early stuff. And then I started to listen to some of the later stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it is different. It's definitely different sounding. But at the same time, it still feels like there's a core aesthetic somewhere lurking underneath it all. You know it's them, and I mean, there's a famous yeah. there's a famous John Peel quote, and they were his favorite band ever, mm-hmm. and he probably played them more than anybody on his show. But the famous quote is that you know the fall always the same, always different, um, and mm-hmm. that that quote has been requoted to death. But it is absolutely true. Um, they changed dramatically, but they also were always the fall, and they always yeah. kind of came out of the same the the the, the same intent. I think mm-hmm. was there through all the eras and periods. How many musicians actually went through the fall? Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I really don't know the exact number. I'm yeah. going to guess over 50. Yes. yes I should know right. that. And there is a book, which is, I, I pulled my stack <laughs> of fall books out just to, it, it, it's, as, as a comforting thing to have in front of me here. Uh-huh. And there, there is a book called The Fallen, E-N, uh-huh. That talk that talks to most all of the past members, um, and I sh- I didn't grab that when I pulled my books this morning, but yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> I think there, there are reasons for that. <laughs> yeah, at some point in the book, uh, they quote Marky Smith as saying that uh, the high turnover was his way of creative management. <laughs> right, right. I actually pulled that quote out. It's in the Bob Stanley essay, uh-huh. um, and I think it's a way that he kept the band continually vital and changing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the constant is him and his vision and his aesthetic, but I like that in a way that he did mix it up and there was a lot of fluctuation and change throughout the band. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the very core crux of the band, there are some members like bassist Steve Hanley or gu- guitarist Craig Scanlon that were in the oh. band for, you know, years and years and years. Uh-huh. Um, and some people moved in and out like Bricks um, and a lot of other people. So they have certainly gone through many lineup changes. And I think that's something along with his curmudgeonly sort of persona. Um, I think I think that and the fact that they went through a million members is something that has been driven into the ground. Like, mm-hmm. like when people talk about them, um, it, it, it's very much a piece of what they are, but it does get referenced a lot. Yeah, well, it's sort of, it's you know sort of the gossip aspect or the you know the, the so you know the, the 
the gossipy part of, of, of a band's life. That's, sure. Uh, for people like me, so easy to be attached to. Yeah, you you want to know about the drama, and and the interesting the interesting thing is that this book does not address any of that. This is not what this book is, um, which which I, I I admire it for not being that because there are plenty of books yeah. that give you a biography of the band or a blow by blow of a tour or an album. I never read any of the other fall books. I did read Marky e. Smith's uh, his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Renegade, uh, yeah, years ago, and yeah. all, and I think it's mostly about horse racing or dog racing or something. <laughs> Am I wrong? It's about a lot. Um, <laughs> I have literally read it in sort of disconnected pieces, uh-huh. um, and it is it is fra- very fractured. Yeah, um, I, and I'll probably mention these again, but I, I really like um, Paul Hanley's book that came out a couple years ago. It's oh. called ha- it's called Have a Bleeding Guess. Uh-huh. Um, the story of Hex Induction Hour uh-huh. and um, Route Publishing put it out in the UK and it, it just focuses on the 1983 album by theirs, which many people claim as their favorite uh-huh. or as, as their high mark Hex Induction Hour. And that book, I think, is a really engrossing read that, that functions as a biography of the band. Right. And functions as more of a day by day of like a, you know, year and a half to two year right. chunk of chunk of time. Bricks also has written a book recently. Yeah, probably before before Paul's book, but yeah, Bricks yeah. has. I mean, many members of the band because there are so many right. <laughs> have, have 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 put put books out. You know, Marky e. Smith is, is comes from North England, like the Manchester, mm-hmm. um, the city in uh, in England, and he strikes me as more than all the other musicians from Manchester. He strikes me as the one that's the least romantic in a funny way about his city. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I may be wrong because I can't understand his words most of the time. But, <laughs> but I got a feeling like when I'm listening to him talk and listening to him sing mm-hmm. um, or as a vocalist, I think of like, okay, he's giving a very, in his own manner, a very accurate picture of his surroundings. I feel the other artist sort of like romanticizes Manchester or romanticizes the, you know, their area, their hometown in a funny mm-hmm. way. Even Morrissey, you know, sort of gives us sort of a, a sort of a 1950s, 60s dramatic tinge, you know, like a kitchen sink novel or definitely. But Marky Smith sort of captures sort of the surreal absurdities of this being a Mancharian, I think. Well, I think it's funny that he, when people would try to push him into claiming he was Mancunian, he would say, "No, I'm a Northern Mancunian," huh. and I think I think that he didn't. I, I I think that he didn't want to align himself with the city. Right. Um, I, I I think I think what he does stands on its own. Mm-hmm. It's not like these songs are not songs of civic pride. No. They're not they're not romanticizations of living in Manchester or what no. what people. You know, it's interesting too being an American and what I, I've asked myself this many times. Like, what appeals to me about this? This isn't my mm-hmm. past or my background. And I think just the otherness of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, maybe even from Southern California, can talk about kind of like this vision they had of what England was and, and, and how true or false it is. Yeah. Um, it's probably not entirely accurate when you're a teenager. But but you base it on pop music and you base it on yeah. kind of the way people portray it in song. And, and he doesn't do that. Well, you know, he reminds me a bit, and this is this is a strange thing I'm going through right now, but I've been listening to The Doors again. Mm-hmm. And in a funny way, he sort of reminds me of Jim Morrison obviously not in voice or music, but the way Jim Morrison approaches Los Angeles, 
It's hmm. not colorful. I mean, it's very kind of, to me, very, um, hmm. not mythologic, but it's more of a, um, a living Los Angeles, not a, uh, not a, like Hollywood or, or, you know, it's not like Hollywood, California. I mean, I, uh, uh, I like the Eagles, you know, it's not, it's not Hotel California. It's very, mm-hmm. kind of, um, I want to say realistic, but it's not, it's a wrong word, but Marky Smith's approach to his surroundings is very, to me, um, indirectly direct. I mean, it's, it's sort of the opposite. It's sort of like it's, it's him dealing with the subject matter. And I'm not fully getting the full picture, but I'm getting the feeling or, or the, or the, or the taste of his surroundings. I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that while he references locations and cities and towns mm-hmm. and things they're they're not idealized in this sort of romanticized hazy memories way um they seem to exist in the now as yeah. he's talking about them in the songs um something i love about them and we touched on this earlier is like this the sense of the otherness and the kind of unreal and the kind of mystical in their songs uh-huh. and I, I like that he pushes that up against this sort of grayness and the kind of industrial north of england where it's like Lovecraft emerging from Manchester fog, you know, like, it's just like, there's something fascinating to me about, especially on those early albums when I think uh-huh. they had a much more overt kind of horror element or a ghost story element. I think it's interesting how those things exist uh-huh. in this sort of, this sort of industrial, very drab place. Um, it's, it's, it's like the fantastic in the everyday. So, so Paul definitely, or Marky Smith def, definitely has a relationship with horror stories or literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't realize that. I did not know that until I read uh, Excavate. Mm-hmm. It, it makes sort of um, uh, specific references to Lovecraft and some other writers I'm not really that familiar with. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not familiar with M.R. James, somebody that I've wanted to read for uh-huh. a long time. Um, he's definitely sort of that's like a that's like a touchstone, you know, for him, and, uh, and just certainly Lovecraft, but. Um, I think that's just kind of like I think he was a fan of weird fiction and fantastic and fantastic fiction, and I like that the way it comes out in their songs is not it's not cheesy or it's not silly. It's mm-hmm. just it's grounded in reality, and it's grounded in sort of these these everyday scenarios. Um, and I I, th- I think that that makes for a really interesting listen. Lyrically. Right, he's definitely an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, I love the album that you love. I, it's the only fall album I have, and mm-hmm. I, and, and it's just you know. At first, I thought maybe it's a concept record about buying a house. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see that because it has a song called "My New House." Yeah, and then and then there's "Mansion," which opens it up. Right, right, right. Certainly. And then the, my favorite song in the album is "Paintwork," which is remarkable. Yeah, let, we'll definitely want to talk more about that. But right, right, it does. And he talks about messing up the paintwork in the house. And yeah. you're right, there are these references to home and the domestic throughout that, that album. That's very interesting. Um, I, th- I, th- I think that album is sort of a lot of people's favorite. And I think it is, it's their hookiest and sort of most, I don't want to say polished, because I think it has a real bite. Yeah. And I polished to me insinuates that the edges have been sanded off. Yeah. And I think for as much swagger and as much attitude and, and kind of oomph as that record has, yeah. it, it's not it's not glossy. It's very well produced, but it it, ha- it has a bite. Yeah, it's produced by uh, uh, John Lecky. Yep. Who produced? Did he produce like early magazine or am I mistaken? <sighs> Was he in the Lightning Seat? No, that's Ian Brody. Yeah, uh, John Lecky did a lot of like sort of like post punk um, mm-hmm. uh, groups and stuff, and I know. Mm-hmm. 
like probably like my favorite records, but I can't remember what. Yeah, I can't right now either. I don't have any cheat sheets. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just, here. I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just going with just the flow right now. <laughs> well, it's interesting to me how um, their whole look and feel was so apart from, especially the factory scene with their very slick covers, you know, these really high and beautifully designed covers and, mm-hmm. and their covers almost look like, you know, a junior high kids, like, you know, notebook doodles or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 there's none of that Peter Saville kind of gloss, no. which this is, this is in no way a criticism. I adore Peter Saville yes. yeah. and I adore his sleeve designs, but no, the fall are like, it, it's like scraps and bits and words and text. And I, I, I love artwork that uses text and I love, mm-hmm. I love, I love when I there's a piece of art that has a ton of words in it, and I can sort of dig in mm-hmm. and just wallow it. And that's visually what the fall are: is that it's just an explosion, and that comes back to the title of the book, excavate, because there is there's so much to excavate even on some of their album covers. Yeah, um, like 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 the sort of impenetrability starts mm-hmm. the second you hold the sleeve in your hand, yeah. and that shouldn't be a turnoff. I think that that's that's something that makes them fascinating and mm-hmm. bewi- yeah. bewi- bewitching um you know hex induction hour is from 83 i'm sorry 82 whoops mm-hmm. and that again is sort of i i think that's the other fan favorite of mm-hmm. an album and it is a it's one hour long hence the title hex induction hour mm-hmm. and it is it is a pulverizing thunderous pounding journey for 60 minutes it is yeah. it is a dense chewy intense thing and, and to me, when you look at the album cover of that, it's just, it's a, it's like a riot of text um, right. and cr- crazy phrases and these mysterious sort of slogans. And I just, I love that because that's what the music sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we should let our listeners know one of the really nice things about this book is they reproduce all the album covers. Um, so you have like a little collection that you can look through in the book, which I think mm-hmm. Yeah, the front great. and the back. Back yeah. of the albums as well, yeah, and and and, and the, all the credits, like all the musicians. And, yeah, it's yeah. very cool that they did that. Yeah. And I, I I feel like the book is arranged chronologically in yeah. a visual sense. The essays are sort of loosely, kind of where they should be, even though sometimes the essays aren't even really about a specific album or song or period. Yeah, but there seems to be visually there seems to be a kind of chronology to the book, yeah. um, and I love that there's. I mean, as an absolute fall fanatic, there's a, there's remarkable stuff in here. There's Christmas cards that he sent to people, yeah. um, which softens his persona tremendously when mm-hmm. you read him. I wish I should have marked one of these pages. But, you know, he's saying, like, here it is, like, mm. you know, all of my love. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not like it's not like he ever said all of my love in any of his lyrics. But, uh-huh. but to see a Christmas card in this book that he wrote to somebody, um, I think that it gives you a pretty three-dimensional idea right. of, of, of him, of his writing habits, and his just his world. Um, yeah, the, the ephemera the, is just incredible. There's it's great. a little bit of everything in the, here. The book feels like it's a catalog to a show, to an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Sort. It does. Yeah. You know, interestingly, um, in L.A., I don't know if you – saw this or knew about it tosh mm. but many years ago I'm, I'm guessing over 20 years ago mm. somebody did an exhibition in los angeles of all the fall covers up to that point oh really oh. it was on it was on fairfax in a small gallery uh-huh. it was kind of near fairfax in santa monica uh-huh. and somebody had simply taken every single fall record and stuck them onto a wall of a gallery maybe the the dirt gallery 
No, Dirt was on Santa Monica. I know that gallery. Oh, okay. I, um, I can't remember the name of it. And Bricks, I guess, was there the opening night. Oh, really? Wow. I, I saw she's it. from L.A., right? And she's from L.A., which, yeah. again, is maybe another hook uh -huh. that, that drew me into the band when I realized, like, that incredible rock goddess is from L.A. Wow. So, <laughs> and, and, and I'm from Southern California. So, yeah, I think that's another really special thing about that era is, uh -huh. is, that, is that she's an L.A. native. And, and to drop her into the middle of this thing that is so Northern England and gray mm. and obtuse and complicated, it's like, wow, th 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 this is a remarkable element to drop into this band. It's, right. That's a page, interesting book for many reasons, but it, it seems like many, you know, like it's like a lot of non-music people are, are, are attracted to the fall. I think a lot of visual artists as well as writers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this book is not like a rock and roll book by any means. It's really more of a book about the band's culture yep. that told through uh, sort of a critical theory or critical history or critical writing. There's not really, I mean, there's, there's, there's journalists, writers uh, who have a relationship with the music world, but they're sort of all thinkers like Michael Bracewell, um, right. Ian Penman, who I love. And I love Bracewell's work as well. And so... Yeah, it's, in a way, it's, it's it, and a lot of the articles, I mean, Bracewell, I think, or maybe it was um, Dan Fox, came from the Freeze magazine, like an art magazine. Right. So a lot of the stuff is not from, like, even music magazines. It's all from, like, art magazines and, and stuff like that. Well, it's interesting because, like, The Fall would not be out of place to have an article written about them in Art Forum, for instance. Yeah. Even 20 years ago, you know, when they were around and, mm -hmm. and Mark was around and all that. Um, and I think I think the fall of always kind of straddled these two worlds of you know art and also music. I, I, I think, and they also willfully flirted with both worlds. Um, mm -hmm. they, they scored a ballet. They worked with yes. Michael Clark. Yeah. So they've done things that put them into both both worlds and both camps. And I think that that's really unusual for you know a, a rock band to sort of have that that flexibility. It's hard for me to see Marky Smith being totally interested in the ballet. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what, what are we talking about? Especially somebody like so avant-garde as she is, my, you know, it's Michael Clark. It's. Um, did this surprise you when you read about this, or what was your take on it? Um, I I was I was a fan at the time that they did. I am curious, Orange, uh -huh. which is the which is the score to the ballet. Mm -hmm. um, and I also was just sort of learning about Lee Bowery, who was involved mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. The, the Australian performance artist, and you know remarkable figure yeah and i i guess because like i had sort of gotten into them a few years prior mm -hmm. it didn't it didn't seem strange to me in a way it kind of seemed like oh this is exciting they're scoring a ballet uh -huh. um michael clark i mean i mean he's very cheeky michael clark has sort of a naughtiness to him yeah. mm -hmm. he has certainly bared his ass <laughs> more yes, than more literally. than once, literally more than once. Yes. And I, I think that I understand what the appeal of Michael Clark was to Marky mm -hmm. Smith, or what what yeah. the draw was. And I totally understand aesthetically why they work together, even though like you didn't see a lot of bands of the era exactly like scoring ballets. No, yeah. it's just have not. you ever seen the ballet? I've seen like long clips of it. You know, if you uh -huh. go on YouTube, um, the music videos for Wrong Place, Right Time. Mm -hmm. And new big prints um, are are both or big new prints are are both excerpts from the ballet, mm -hmm. and I believe I, I, this might be wrong. I feel like Charles Atlas or somebody f did a whole film with Michael Clark in the fall called called New Puritan, 
And that's like an extended dance routine using different fall music. Uh So they they had already kind of been in each other's worlds before, before I am curious orange. Uh And I think that's maybe like 88 is when Uh they did curious orange. Uh That is a fantastic record. Um, and it is if Tosh, if you love this nation saving grace, yes. I think it's like it's like a great next next thing to touch upon because it the yeah. songs have great hooks and they're weird enough, but they're catchy enough. And and that to me is like my favorite period of the fall where like yeah. they still they still were absolutely one hundred percent the fall and he is full bore Marky Smith. Yeah. But they've all they've also got an incredible amount of like pop hooks and right. rock and roll swagger. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like something that i did last night was that i went on youtube and i watched two different clips from the tube Mm -hmm. um the british music show Mm -hmm. one is from 83 and um their sound is hard and it's difficult they do uh two songs smile and i think they do oh god i'm forgetting what the second song is garden Hmm. and and they're difficult songs but they have hooks and then in 85 they come back and he's fully with bricks at this point and she's got i i I say this she's got him like i think she influenced him Uh he's got he's got an eyeliner and a full-length leather jacket oh my god he's got glam like like this sort of trench coat and Uh he he looks fucking amazing yeah yeah like Uh and he's got this he's always had swagger and attitude and presence but like when you see the 1985 i mean just search on google Uh fall fall tube 1985 Uh they are such a fantastic rock and roll outfit in this clip Uh they're just they're tough they're big their sound is huge the riffs are like ridiculous Uh and it's amazing to me how much they changed in in a tight window of time Mm -hmm. um and they became this like rock band that was somehow still the fall right do you think that, you know? To me, once in a while, I hear like a glam rock or Gary Glitter reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like not the chorus, but like the built up to the chorus, and then Mark takes it somewhere else. <laughs> he doesn't take, take it to like rock and roll. Yeah, it's sort of like the beginning, and then he goes somewhere else. But I sense, I sense there's a Gary Glitter element in. in, uh, in sure, that. sure, <laughs> and I think maybe British people can see that more clearly too. Like they yeah. they sort of see what he's playing with or what he's referencing but yeah there is i think in that period kind of 84 85 86 ish like there is a glam kind of i don't want to say musically vibe but just like they began to maybe pay more attention to their image yeah um and when you look back at clips of them in the very early 80s they're performing on stage with their back to the audience and he's hunched over the mic and he's he's gnomic (laughs) you know and then suddenly He's got this sort of he's still he's still distant and he's still difficult, yeah. but suddenly he's got he's got kind of this rock star vibe and I love it. Right. I just I just adore that that fusion. And he was for a while he was doing like live sound mixes on stage by going to his musicians' <laughs> amplifiers and twisting the knobs or turning it off, turning mm-hmm. it on. <laughs> I think that's like a later period thing. I think that's like maybe in their last third uh, you know uh, or, or their last 20 years as a band yes. is that i think maybe to keep the musicians on their toes he would just fuck with the levels he yeah. would unplug, he would unplug things um yeah. he would move mics around yeah. which i'm sure is hilarious to the audience but not fun for the musicians the, I, the, the faces didn't look friendly when he did that <laughs> the faces were kind of disturbed were right. yeah yeah i mean he's he's always he was always poking his finger in whatever pie was perfect you know and right. he's, always, he's always there to sort of throw you off 
Um, and I think when his musicians got too comfortable, and this is kind of what mm-hmm. you referenced, Kemley, was this, um, I wrote it down, what did they call it? The, the, the sort of, Bob Stanley refers to this, creative, right, creative, creative management. management. Yeah. I, I think that kept the band fresh and mm-hmm. on, on their toes. Right. I mean, I think he was very conscious about it. In the, sure. Of all the things he was doing. And I think when people got too comfortable, be it the band or be it the fans, mm-hmm. got too comfortable or knew what they thought they knew to expect, I think he was there just to fuck it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is... the Bob Stanley uh, essay is pretty much about that. It's uh, call yourselves bloody professionals, mm-hmm. fall on amateurism, and he's talking about how they just never really wanted to have that slick professional feel. That he was always doing something to keep changing it and keep, like you say, poking at it and uh, mm-hmm. making sure things will start falling apart to make it more interesting. I mean, I think the musicians and especially like the core at that time of Steve Hanley on bass Mm -hmm. and their drum, they had two drummers kind of in that period. There's Carl Burns, who's kind of like the loose cannon of the band. And he's just an incredible drummer. Mm -hmm. And then Paul Hanley, that's Steve Hanley's brother. So they had a two drummer lineup Mm -hmm. uh, at a period in the mid eighties. And I just, I feel like, I feel like the musicians are incredibly capable and incredibly professional, mm-hmm. but they're a band that would never tout themselves as professionals. Mm-hmm. There was no soloing or virtuoso guitar moments. Like yeah. there's, no, there's no Steve Vai in this band. No, and there's no, there's no solos where there's a spotlight on the guitarist. No. Um, mm-hmm. They're one unified attack force, you know, it's, it's, um, it's anti Mick Ronson. It's anti Mick Ronson, but, <laughs> but I think it's funny that like, like I think that that it, amateurism kind of has a very negative connotation to it, and mm. I feel like that amateurism is what let them do whatever they wanted to do. Yeah, and that they didn't tout themselves as these incredible, perfect musicians. I I, I think by remaining kind of steadfastly amateur yeah. in a way, they were allowed kind of, kind of exist in their own realm. There's, mm-hmm. I, there's an interview with David Bowie where he mentions that the best time to do art is when you don't feel comfortable. You feel good. Right. You, you're touching the ground of sorts, but you're not softly on the ground. And you're feeling, you know, <laughs> you got to be in that sort of state of mind where you're not sure what's going to happen around the corner, but you're sort of excited at that moment. That's great. So you can't be like places. So I think, I think Mark's whole life, at least his artistic life, was always... You know, we got to keep moving on. We have to do unexpected things. We can't, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and he seems to be very sort of... In a, in a couple of interviews I've heard on, on YouTube, he seems to be very sort of focused on the fact that, you know, I'm not a... You know, he can't go in the past. You have to, he's very much a person in the presence, in the present. Well, it's interesting because I think so many bands of their era kind of went on for 20, 25, 30 years playing the hits. Yeah. And... The fall didn't do that and they would play the bulk of a new album mm-hmm. you know when they would tour and then i'm i i know and i know from set lists and bootlegs and having seen them live numerous times they would haul out a few old songs mm-hmm. but they would not be the ones that you necessarily wanted to hear mm-hmm. or, ex- or expected to hear and i have to admire that right um yeah. i know that some fans leave a gig and they feel gypped because they didn't hear this track that track and this track but in a way that 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 unexpectedness mm-hmm. i think was, was very exciting where it was like i don't know what they're gonna do yeah i, I don't know what he's gonna unplug tonight <laughs> but, right. but but he he's 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 gonna throw us for a loop somehow if he doesn't if he doesn't play paintwork i'm gonna die 
<laughs> I mean, that that's an interesting song, and I actually would like to talk about that because that uh -huh. song has that song has mistakes in it, and that song yes. fe features a, a a true moment where I don't think this was intentional. He recorded over the master recording by like sitting on a tape recorder by accident and recording uh -huh. the TV. So there's there's a beautiful moment, and that's a beautiful song. Yes, it is. It's very beautiful, yeah. and it, it has a strange lilting quality. And then suddenly, there's this like, crank, and there's yeah. this moment where it, a tape recorder, you hear it, it goes like, yeah. and then and then you hear like a nature program on television, playing it from across a room, yeah. And it, and it fits. It's not jarring. It fits right into the kind of rhythm. It's like a music concrete piece. In a it's way. a very music concrete moment, yeah. but it, it works seamlessly, even though it's a mistake. Yeah, because that riff keeps that that beautiful riff throughout the whole song just keeps going. You know, it doesn't stop. It's like a machine. Yeah, it's very cyclical, and it has a very dreamy yeah. kind of quality. But then there he is. I mean, like we've talked about, there he is screwing it up. Yes, I, I, the only words I can make out once in a while is the title, you know, paintwork, mm -hmm. and then he does, "Hey, Mark." <laughs> hey mark yeah that's yeah, a great song I, I love that i love my new house on that record um i i, I am damo suzuki is yes so, sometimes when push comes to shove my very favorite fall song yeah. and, and that that's all on side two of this nation saving grace i think it's a remarkable stretch of tracks. because he does that song and it's mm -hmm. the only fall album I have. And, and my albums, I don't have it in alphabetical order. I only mood. I have a mood section. So <laughs> I put this album with the can records. I think Mark uh, would like that. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. I, 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 I hate to theorize on what Mark would like or not like, yeah. but I think he would very much like that because he was a huge fan. Yeah, um, I, I can hear in the music. I mean, and you can hear yeah. it in the music. And the cool thing about I Am Damo Suzuki, I mean, to me, it's like such a signature fall track, is that it, it is it is unmistakably uh, their sort of take on Oh Yeah by, by Kim, from, by, yeah. from, from Tago Mago by yeah. Ken. It's got that kind of roiling rhythm, and it's got that remarkable, repetitive churn to it. But he also, I mean, he also just directly references Damo Suzuki throughout the yeah. song. And also, there's fun can jokes in that song, too. And, and who's a, a singer who is totally improvises on the stage and the foggiest idea of what he's singing about. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> I, I think they're very similar in that way. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to find that there's a fall fan website of annotated lyrics. So it's not only the like, you know, what people think the lyrics are about, but debating what the lyrics in fact are <laughs> seriously I guess he never wanted to have them printed anywhere um no and then also like he they refused to be on tv shows where they had to supply the printed right. lyrics beforehand because he thought that it killed the song or the song was no longer a, a, a live thing if you wrote the lyrics but the follow like when i listen to them i barely want to call it songs they're more like um a skeleton of a song to me sometimes <laughs> you know i mean it's not, it's not like a chorus bridge chorus it's not that at all mm -hmm. it's sort of like it just sort of builds up and then it goes or it's just sort of like even the lyrics are so fragmented you know hey mark that's why you know about that song yeah hey, i I, th I think describing something like that makes it sound to the uninitiated like these songs might be unlistenable no, or no, that, no. that they might be formless but they're not no, um no. even though there's no verse chorus verse structure something is so propulsive even in their most skeletal and even in their most stripped down songs there is still something that just pulls you through mm -hmm. 
the songs, even though you're not like, well, here comes the chorus. Okay, here, here's the third verse. Here right. comes the chorus. Here's the bridge. They're not doing that at all, but the songs are incredibly listenable and enchanting and fascinating. Absolutely. I, I, and I did yeah. not mean it in that sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely know that you but for me, but, but, but for me, the, listening to the song, it's, it's like it's more than a song. It's sort of a... Um, you know, it's sort of like somewhere more like a like a like a late Miles Davis electric band piece to me in a funny way. It's sort of like, <laughs> you know, it's like I mean, is there is there anybody who covers the fall? Has anybody has anybody done a fall song? Sure, there are. Really? Okay, there are a lot of bands that have covered the fall, and there are also floating around out there. There are like tribute albums mm -hmm. that have been kind of fan made by people kind of throwing bands together. Mm -hmm. um, God, what what can I pull up off the top of my head as a great fall cover? I mean, they're out there. There's a really great New York band called God is My Co-Pilot mm -hmm. um, from the kind of early 90s, mid 90s. It did a really good, uh, I think, Totally Wired. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that people, you know, there's a lot of bands I don't want to hear covered. Mm -hmm. and, for, and for some reason, like, I love to hear what people do with a fall song. I think oh. it's fa fascinating because they're so themselves and they're so in their own universe. Uh -huh. But it interests me to hear other people sort of interpret those songs. I, I love a good fall cover. I encourage people to do, you know, do your own fall song and go for it. Seriously, go for it. Yeah, why not? Just, just dig in. I'm going to do, hey, Tosh. Hey, Tosh. You're, you're spoiling all the paintwork. Yes. <laughs> a lot of the essays in the book kind of talk about the contrariness and contradictions, both artistically and politically. And he's such a complicated character and people really mm -hmm. The essays in this book seem to really dig into that more as ideas sort of on a grander scale rather than the specifics of his daily life. Mm -hmm. um, how did you feel about that as a fall fan? I think it's inevitable. You kind of have to talk about it. Um, yeah. I, I sort of like there definitely are there are essays in the book that I found hard to connect with. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to be perfectly honest. And I think there are, there are elements of the book that I very much locked into and I sort of understood. And there really are some essays, I don't want to call them out specifically, that I just lost me. Mm -hmm. And I know that the point was to sort of not talk about the band from A to Z. Um, the mm -hmm. point is to kind of, I mean, as I think Bob Stanley says, like in the introduction, and, and Tessa Norton say in the introduction, this is not a book about a rock band. This is not even a book about Marky e. Smith. Mm -hmm. I love this line. I love this line. This is the world of the fall. This is the fall-shaped hole they punched in the wall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that the hole they punched in the wall came out of the records and the music, and it also came out of him as a personality mm -hmm. and, and as a figure. And I, I'm wary, especially when he died in 2018. I was wary of people zeroing in too much on how difficult he was mm -hmm. or what a crank he was or how irascible he was. Um, because I think, I think there's more to him and the band than just, just like, Oh, they had that lead singer that was a curmudgeon. Right. So I like that the book doesn't, doesn't get locked into that. It talks about him. I, I think in a broader sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it does a good job of not sort of taking that easy, uneducated look at them and saying like, Oh, their, their singer was really a, a, a dictator right. and, a night, and a nightmare and maybe he was and he's i mean anybody with like such a fixed vision you know is 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 going to piss off their band members mm -hmm. um, right. so he's he's a really complicated figure but he still signs his christmas cards with what is all my love <laughs> right right i mean that's the fact and, and you know one of his the last things he publicly said before he died 
because uh, he knew he was dying. Um, it was something like, I, I want to hold you all, but I cannot. Mm-hmm. Or it was like, I want to embrace. And it was like, wow, that tenderness coming out of somebody that has such a hardened, intense public persona. Mm-hmm. Like, like he's not a cuddly figure, but I think that there was a lot of humor. I mean, he's ultimately the fall are very funny to me. And I mm-hmm. think there is tons of humor in their lyrics. I think there's a lot of humor on the records that is mm-hmm. maybe buried or, or, you know, a little harder to find, mm-hmm. but e- even his persona, I don't, I don't think he was a terrifying figure. I feel like had I ever met him, I, th- I think if you minded your manners and you were a polite person to him, I think I think he could have been like a very wonderful person to have a pint with. Yeah, right. I really do. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, when I see the videos with him, there's always that little bit of a wink, wink, twinkle in his eye. You know, it's yeah. I don't get the sense that he take he took himself as seriously as his fans probably did. <laughs> That's a very good way to put it, and I think that I think he played with that image, and I think that. I, I think as he got older, I think he he got referred to a lot in the British press as a national treasure, mm-hmm. and and it's kind of weird, like the trajectory of, of of his persona to look at it over the years, and to read interviews from the late seventies or early eighties, and then kind of see how he was processed by popular culture in the two thousands, or right. you know, in, in, into their into his later years. Uh-huh. He died he died when he was sixty, so you know, his later years are. You know, I'm 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 52, so so you know he 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 died at a fairly early age. He's yeah. a, he was just a young lad. Yeah, really. And, and he it, was still touring pretty close up to the end, right? I mean, working, recording, and recording. Yeah, there's a famous show where he came out in a wheelchair on yeah. stage and performed in the wheelchair. Wow. And you know, he had cancer, and it's just his decline. I think it's something that he. I think the work ethic of the fall was such that he didn't want to let it take him. And I think uh, he was like, fuck it, I'm getting in this wheelchair, I'm going on the stage and I'm I'm gonna deliver the whole set from this chair. Right. Because that's who they were. He's so bloody minded uh-huh. and he was so, you know, it, 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 immovable in his like in, in, in his conviction that it, it's like they did tour up to the very end. I think their last show was maybe the fall of twenty seventeen. Uh-huh. He he died like maybe January, January, uh-huh. late January twenty eighteen. Is when he passed. That's pretty remarkable. But they, they kept it going. They haven't come back to the U.S. in a long time. The last time I saw them, I think, was at the Echo here in Los Angeles. Um, and they toured the U.S. fairly regularly, maybe in the 80s, I would uh-huh. think. And then it got much more sporadic. First time I saw them was like 88 um, here, here in L.A. What was it like for you to see the fall in person? Uh, it was at John Anson Ford Theater up on the hillside, kind of overlooking you know, the one-on-one <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was 19 and I had been into them for a good couple of years and it was, it was great. I mean, Bricks was in the band and we were up, we were pretty close and up front, you know, she threw guitar picks into the crowd that had her name on them, uh-huh. which, which I promptly lost, which to this day, like that just pains me uh-huh. to no end. Um, I would kill to find that again. And it was, it was such honestly a fun show. It was uh-huh. For the Friends Experiment, um, which I think is a fantastic kind of mid-period album by them. Come, it comes after This Nation's Saving Grace. Mm-hmm. But they were just wonderful. People were dancing in the aisles um, of the John Anson Ford Theater. And mm-hmm. I remember they have a great song called Guest, Guest Informant that's really catchy and mm-hmm. really 
a fantastically great pop song and people were just twirling and spinning that's kind of amazing because you don't see people dancing at shows very much in la no. i mean no. people tend to be you know too cool for school <laughs> exactly and i thought i thought they were you know even at that age i thought there was they were really exuberant and they were really thrilling and fun wow. and i have a great Boston radio recording from that tour that really captures the kind of way they sounded and the feel Ooh. of just just how dynamic and how great they were at that period. Um, I just love that period. They have a one of my favorite songs by them also from This Nation Saving Grace is called L.A. And it's yes. just a, a wonderful, weird sketch of L.A., almost like from a passing car, you know, a car going through the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, his lyrics kind of bubble up. And when they played L.A., it was just, it was thrilling because I was like, we're in L.A. They're, they're playing L.A. It's my favorite, it's like my favorite band and the song is about my city. And, and, and it was just, it's great. I, I have really lovely memories of, of that show. And then to contrast, the next time I saw them was in 1990 on the Extricate tour. Uh -huh. um, Bricks had left the band and they played the Park Plaza Hotel uh -huh. downtown. And I, I kid you not, they spent the entire show in darkness where they had the lights pointed at the back of the stage. Mm -hmm. And so the band were just silhouetted. And to the best of my memory, he spent almost the whole show hunched over the mic with his back to the crowd, mm -hmm. which was a very different experience than, mm -hmm. than the previous show. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and Extricate is a darker record, and it's a, kind of an angrier record than the previous two. Mm -hmm. So it, maybe it was fitting. But yeah, it was a very different atmosphere for that show. So that they could be very different in the space of a couple of years. So did he have like stagecraft on stage? Was he, was he somebody who, and I mean, what I've seen of him, hmm. he doesn't look like a performer. But then again, that in itself is a performance. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, his in-between songs banter is really funny and fun and fun. Mm -hmm. That's a weird word to use. Mm -hmm. Not so much fun. I guess funny and just wry. And he would just deliver these hilarious kind of things between songs. He definitely was not somebody that emoted in a way on stage. There's no dancing. Right. It wasn't like he, you watch a band and you're like, oh my God, they're, you know, wrestling with that guitar and it's oh. so intense. And, and no, he's, he's sort of still mm -hmm. and intense uh -huh. and, and even when they were at their sort of poppiest and most rock and roll, he still had this very like intense stage presence without moving yeah. a lot, without yeah. without flailing around like Morrissey or something. They only did a couple of covers themselves, right? They they, they did a song. There's a ghost in the house. Mm -hmm. The Ardeen Taylor song, which is yeah great. Um, it, it, it it's funny because the Beggar's Banquet Years, and that's uh -huh. the period from to me like '84. I guess that's 84 uh -huh. kind of onwards. You know, most of their chart successes in that period are covers. They do Victoria by the Kinks. Yes. Which I think might be their biggest selling single they ever had. Uh -huh. And it's, you know, it's a fantastic version of a great song anyways. Yeah. Um, There's a Ghost in My House. Um, they've done tons of covers over the years. They do a really great Lost in Music um, by Sister Sledge on the infotainment scan. Oh, wow. From like, I think that's like 92 or thereabouts. Uh -huh. Um which is quite disco and like really it's like the, the fall as a dance band, which, uh, you know, they definitely like flirted with dance music and electronics. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, their choice of covers is as, as eclectic and confusing as the band themselves. Cause ghost in the house is, sort of, is that a Northern soul record? I know it's a Motown record, like a beast or was it, a, I don't think it was ever a hit. Was it? I don't know that it was. Um, I know that it, it was embraced by like the Northern soul scene. So that's yeah. certainly where he would have heard it. And it's kind of like tainted love 
you know, by Gloria yeah. Jones being being a northern soul hit that Soft Cell then came yeah, to as, yeah. as British people and put their own weird British yeah. bed bedsit spin on a northern soul classic. But like, I, I love that when you hear the original Ghost in My House and you hear the oh. Falls version, the Falls version really is quite quite faithful to the yeah. original. It is. It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's it is undoubtedly a fall song. Yeah, and it's it's got his drawl on it, and it's, it's got their spidery, strange kind of sense to it. But it, it still is absolutely a cover of that song. See another house song, another song about another house song. You're right, <laughs> something I really hadn't picked up on. But you know, there's a there's a really cool collection that I think Universal Music did a couple years or many years ago. Um, that's called Oh God. A world bewitched. Uh -huh. I'm gonna I'm gonna get yelled at by fall fans if I'm wrong. And it was a two disc set, and the first one disc was a bunch of covers that they had done, mm -hmm. um, their cover versions. And the second disc was his collaborations with other artists. Mm -hmm. um, so that's if you can find a world bewitched. I think that's what it's called, and that's a good way to find a whole bunch of their covers uh -huh. in one in, in one place. Yeah, I didn't realize they did so many covers. I this is you know I'm learning so I'm learning so much actually talking to you about the fall. <laughs> good, good. Uh, there's another R. Dean Taylor cover they do called "Gotta See Jane," huh. um, that is really I think you'd love it. You should definitely look that up as well. Huh. Wow. So they've actually they, and sadly they never did. Um, Indiana is it Indiana wants me? Do you know that R. Dean Taylor song? No. Wait, do I know that? I think I, I'm sort of... That's a great song. Slightly familiar, but not, not you know, I may have heard it once in my life. Sadly, they never did that, but huh. they, yeah, they did a couple. So, yeah, their, their choices of covers are just fascinating because you also understand what he was influenced by right. and the music that he liked. And some of it's cheesy. They definitely covered cheesy songs that I think might mean something to British people that grew up in the 70s that we don't have as Americans don't have a real take on. Right. That, that I think there's a cheekiness and a a sort of sly humor to some of the choices he made in their cover versions. Because I would imagine he would do like covers of garage, you know, classic American garage rock songs. Mm -hmm. you know? But he didn't. He does, you know, Ghost in the House and yeah, and stuff like that. And actually, on YouTube, I heard him do a little bit of um, a documentary. I mean, they were doing um, a Move song. Um, oh, uh, I, I can hear the grass grow. Yeah, listen to the grass yeah. grow. Was that released? That, or is that... that was released. That's on, I believe, Fall Heads Roll, uh -huh. which is a great later period fall record. To me, that was kind of almost a return to form for them uh -huh. after a couple records that maybe I felt a little a little unsure about. But that fall, that Move cover is cracking. It's it's really good, <laughs> and, and then also I should mention because um, I would be remiss not to mention it. They covered Mister Pharmacist. Speaking of like a '60s garage song mm. by uh, the other half, oh. and that and that's on Ben Sinister. Okay, um, so that's a cover song. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, that's a good one. Yeah, look up look up the original. But again, they nail it, and they uh -huh. they pay tribute to the song in a way that is not they they don't dismantle it and they don't take it apart. They they make it a false song, but also uh, unmistakably mm -hmm. pay tribute to the original in a in, in in a really affectionate way. Yeah, he seems his whole ethos seems to be to be constantly pushing himself in you know any creative way possible. Either mm -hmm. you know an eclectic choice of cover songs like we're talking about, constantly changing the band. Which I mean, that had to have been hard for him too because he has to work with these people, and so he doesn't ever get a level of comfort himself either. You know and that's true that's true that's a really good way to look at it too and i don't think he wanted mm -hmm. any comfort i don't think exactly. he wanted that level of comfort you know their their work ethic and their output 
pace is just astounding if you look at a discography i mean i i don't think they take a year off from pretty much the first album until i feel like there's a year in the 80s maybe 87 where there might be like a single or one or two singles but no album and you know they were some years there's two albums released and 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 the flood of singles and eps from them throughout the kind of 70s and 80s heyday is just it's just staggering i mean there is so much damn material there's i think there's 32 purely studio albums um and then there are just countless collections um there's like a handful of live things um it's just it's just it it's such a hard band for people to look at not knowing them and and there's always that feeling i think the mecons are the same way who i also really adore Uh of like where do i begin and their work ethic is so intense and they put out so much material that I think it's daunting. Yes. But there are great points of entry. All right. So tell us. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, the I, ultimate question. I, I, I feel like I have, and I get asked this a lot by people like, where do I begin? What do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm going to say this nation saving grace because I just love it so much. Yes. But honestly, I think starting at the beginning with live at the witch trials and like 70. That's what I did. Yeah. Nine, and then, seeing how the sound thickens and coagulates and changes i i think i think dragnet in 70 i think that's also 79 if i'm not mistaken is a very different record sonically than live at the witch trials Mm -hmm. um it's much murkier and spookier uh it has an incredible track called specter versus rector Mm -hmm. that is like one of their first forays into just incredible heaviness um it the song is just dominated by by hanley's bass and it's just it, it's a monster mm-hmm. of a song and you kind of start to get the false sound you know around that time and then grotesque comes in 1980 and again it's like almost like it, their sound just crystallizes for me kind of around that period um my other favorite thing by them is a six track ep called slates and that came out in 81 and, and it, it is to me, like, if I wasn't going to tell somebody to start with the pop stuff in 85, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the kind of fun rock band stuff, I would tell them to just get slates. Mm-hmm. And it, because mm-hmm. it's, it's a remarkable six track. It's the greatest 10 inch single of all time. Um, it's just a remarkable piece of the fall where all six songs are classics. They're incredibly different from one another, but they're all of the same feel. You know, it, it's all unmistakably the fall. And Slates is this thing where it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is what they sound like. Mm-hmm. Like where it's sort of grotesque is there. And to me, Slates is like their sound just absolutely comes into like vivid full color. Mm-hmm. Um, the songs are difficult, but propulsive. You know, there's a lot going on. And like you said earlier, it's not verse, chorus, verse, yeah. but but there is something that is just unmistakably just pulling you through these songs. There's an energy that is just un, like undeniable to that material. That is a remarkable document. Uh, uh-huh. I, I think it's one of the most like perfect fall things there is. There there are fall albums that you you do not care for or you have questions about. It's funny, like as they came out over the years, and as you know, I, I consumed these records live. Um, and I don't want to be super negative, but I think I think there is a drop off for me kind of going into the 2000s. Um, I feel like his vocals became much less sharp uh-huh. and it was harder and harder to I mean, it is hard to make out what he's saying a lot of the time, yes. but he becomes a lot more guttural and a lot more slurry. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's, you know, because of drinking 
because of personal habits, because of age, because of just wear and wear and tear. But I think definitely there's there's a period in the early 2000s that where like it it it's hard to grab onto some of the records. Mm-hmm. Um, the songs become a little less sort of arresting to me, and I think it has a lot to do with his vocals. Right. Um, where like it's not like lines jump out like you know a barbed hook and grab you. Um, he tended to kind of rawr, rawr, and just sort of growl and and that that to me is not the same as hearing this like incredible phrase or a turn of phrase or a lyric where you're like what was that holy mm-hmm. shit mm-hmm. um and it's not that i i don't know if there's any fall records i absolutely intensely dislike right um i don't love the light user syndrome mm-hmm. that's i think 90 mid 90s and that's when Bricks returns to the band. Mm-hmm. And, and I like her songs on that. And I like her input on that. But I think there's just, there's phases um, right. that I'm less sort of affectionate of than others. And then, you know, there's surprises there. They have an album called The Unutterable mm-hmm. from, I think it's 99. That is incredible. And it's like, mm-hmm. they came back after a period where it was like, whoa, there's like new life in this band and there's a new focus. And again, I think that comes from him changing it up and maybe having fresh blood come in. Yeah. The Unutterable is remarkable. And there's some of my like favorite later period fall songs are on that record. Fall, fall heads roll is from a little bit after that. I think Uh that's, that's incredible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, there's always something to zero in on, on the records, even when I feel less than thrilled about whatever era or phase, I, I, I still think that there is something fascinating even in the songs that I find right. off-putting, there's still yeah. something fascinating happening. If you're a fan of that band or that artist, and you know, I mean, they have a long career. There's of course going to be lulls in their, sure, yeah. in their, in their yeah. discography. But even you know, after a while, even that becomes interesting. If you're a fan, you want to know why you don't like it. Yeah, and I've gone back to some of those records, kind of the maybe like things over the past like in the last 10 years of the band that i found like i didn't really connect with or things i found off-putting and i've kind of found elements to the songs where it's like i didn't really appreciate this in this way before right. um yeah. and i can't i can't write anything by them off even if it didn't necessarily right you know sink in mm-hmm. i i simply can't i mean their output as a whole is such an incredible mo- monolithic thing right that that i i can always go back and sort of dig back in I think any great creative person, their their career, as long as they keep producing, is always going to be interesting. It's always going to have ups and downs, but you're still going to go look at all aspects of it and say, well, what were they trying to do here? You know, where were they trying to go with this and where mm-hmm. did they go afterwards? And, you know, it's always fascinating. I mean, any artist that I really respect, I, I'm grateful that I have, you know, access to all of it, regardless of, you know, whether it's not the high point of their career it's all mm-hmm. interesting it's all a you know a development fully, yeah. f- fully agreed i mean absolutely and i think it's funny to look at when i was a teenager like there was a point i had a really hard cutoff with the cure mm-hmm. um i very much liked the cure and i really really disliked an album they did in 1987 uh-huh. 88 called kiss me kiss me kiss me mm-hmm. and it was not what i wanted <laughs> as an, as a 17 or 18 year old Southern California goth cure fan. And, and, and I have a hard, I have a hard break with them. Um, 
And there's other bands like, which I've come back around on The Cure and I definitely have revisited them and I have a very soft spot for them. But it's funny, The Fall are not a band that even when they didn't do what I wanted them to do or even when I was like, I don't know about this, I I wasn't going to let go of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think if they fail, they failed on their own terms and you, you can always respect an artist. Mm-hmm. Or artistic stuff, but they they failed on their own terms. Not because they're told to make a certain type of record, or be commercial, or be or <laughs> you know, they failed because they just failed. <laughs> and right, it, and it, I I think the fall stayed absolutely true, and Mark stayed absolutely true to his intent yeah. through through the entire career, and they didn't make it easy for anybody, and he doesn't hold your hand, and I I, I have to admire that. Yeah, even yeah. if I don't necessarily warm up to what he is doing at any particular time I, I have to absolutely respect what he's doing and and be in awe of of of, of it all really so excavate how do you feel this is a fall book compared to the other fall books you have i mean how how i know you find some parts of this book troublesome or, or <laughs> but but would you recommend this book to to anyone <laughs> i would absolutely I, that's a great way to ask um I would absolutely recommend it because I think that what it tries to do is really admirable. Uh-huh. And I think there are, I mean, I'm looking at a stack on my coffee table. There are a lot of books that tell the story of the band yeah. and a lot of books that are like a album by album, song by song analysis. And this is, this is absolutely not that. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's what I wanted out of it, I, I have to like, like the fall themselves. I have to admire it, its intent yeah. and how it sticks to its intent. Yes. You know, and, and how it pulls off what it does. You know, this is not this is not the story of the band. This is the story of what influenced yeah. the band and what influence they had, and kind of how all of these people, these academics, these writers, uh-huh. these artists that have all contributed to this book. This is how they've all processed the the, the group and their music and Mark. And I think that that is really cool. Yeah. And to and and also to mix in the ephemeral aspect and the visual. Yeah aspect is is a really special touch if this had just been a book of essays um i think it would just be a really impenetrable thing yeah, and I, I i think that when you see visually you see the sort of output of the band you see these flyers you see the christmas cards which just right. crack me up mm-hmm. um and, and you see all this visual ephemeral pieces there's even a bar mat like a little coaster in here mm-hmm. with like you know with like a, a scrawl on the back. And and that to me is like as much a part of what built these songs as a lyric sheet. Yeah. And, and that's what I love about this book is that it is, it is many things. And I think it's very admirable in, in, in taking this approach. I agree with you. And for me, liking a band or an artist, I have to also, I, for me, I have to go into their culture. You mm-hmm. know? So I love like, like I'm a huge David Bowie fan. So I love to know, David Bowie's 100 favorite books or, you know, some quirky aspect of David Bowie's life, you know, the legendary Stardust Cowboy or, you know, something <laughs> you know, like, you know, I want to go into that. I want to, yeah. and the fall book is, is actually for me, a good introduction to, to the, to Mark Eastman's culture, you know, whatever, I'm not even sure if it's a correct form of history, but right. it, it's, you know, that, I know the fall is more than just the fall. There's a whole culture involved. And I, Absolutely. I appreciate the book for them to expose that culture. And, you know, they're almost a band that is made for footnotes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I, mean, I mean, they really are. And I think that I think fall obsessives are people that are drawn to pages and pages of footnotes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kim Lee mentioned, and I, I, want, I actually wrote it down to mention it, but you beat me to it. The, <laughs> the, the, the annotated fall website 
which I think everybody listening to this should look up, especially if you're a fall fan. And if you're a fall fan, you already know it. Right. But <laughs> it is all footnotes and it is song by song, literally line by line, a sort of deep dive, like rabbit hole tumble into what what at least what the person running the website thinks the songs are about. That the, the, there is no one interpretation of any of these songs. I mean, right. that's what's interesting about them is that everybody brings something different away. But th there are also, there are hard references in the songs. There are things that you can absolutely say, mm -hmm. this this is referring to this. And this book, I mean, th their songs and their albums, and especially this book, have a million rabbit holes to go down. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're an obsessive personality that loves ephemera, this, mm -hmm. is, this is like a real treat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wish that there was a book like this for every band that I like. <laughs> right? I know. I know. I agree. I agree. And and also something that as a kid or as a teenager, I love to read interviews with bands, whoever they were, uh -huh. to find out what they listened to mm -hmm. and yeah. to see who, what led them where. I mean, I learned about Swell Maps from Pavement. I learned about probably Can through Stereo Lab back mm -hmm. in the early 90s. And I'm so, yeah. great, I'm so grateful to these bands that I, I grew up listening to talking about yeah. what they what they loved because it just sent me down all these different avenues and that's so exciting as a music listener to, yeah. to discover more and more things because of the people that you listen to yeah the smith yeah. the smiths were that way to me or morrissey you sure know? yeah i discovered billy fury through i heard of billy fury but i would never <laughs> i would never actually buy a billy fury record until <laughs> he had his visual reference i said that is incredible haircut that man has. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. And I said, man, that hair is great. He has this kind of hair. <laughs> and it was, it was Morrissey's, you know, his, his viewpoint of Billy Fury, which I think has a lot to do with his haircut as well. <laughs> and I'm like the biggest Billy Fury fan now. So it's sort of like, I need... I love that. Yeah, so <laughs> when a band or an artist picks up on something, you pick up on it as a listener or a fan of that artist, it's exciting. Of, yeah, it is very yeah. exciting. Yeah. And it never ends. It no. just never ends. It's like I constantly find that, I mean, in this day and age, like where we can dig into false songs because of the internet and because yeah. of things like discussion groups. I mean, it, it, it's like an onion that has, it's this a dopey cliche, but it is like an onion that has like a, an, an eternal skin. Like there are just layers and layers and layers to keep digging at and picking at. Um, and, and that's tremendously gratifying, w whether it be what the songs mean or whether it be what influenced these songs or, 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 or what what was in Mark's head and world and culture that that he then kind of regurgitates back out as as the fall. Yeah. And this book, this book absolutely makes a very strong attempt at capturing that. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Dave, you know, can you make a, a list of your the, the albums you recommend for the fall? We'll put it up on our on our sure. website. Yeah, like 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 a ten yeah, fall like, records. Yeah, you still yeah the introduction. I'd love to do that. Because yeah. we're just amateurs. We're 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 for amateurs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to I'm always happy to hold people's hands and guide them into the murk. Right. Well, that's the best way to find out about things. <laughs> I think so. Somebody holding your hand through the murk. Absolutely. Because <laughs> the, the fall is too scary for me. I need to hold somebody's hand. They are. They are. They are scary. But but it it, it, it it's it's a very rewarding, yeah. re, re, rewarding wade into murky waters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's right. a lot here to unpack. Yes. So, Kinley, what is our next adventure? Our next adventure, we're going to be discussing Why LaBelle Matters by Adele Berté. 
Ah. Um, yeah, so that should be good. That's part of a Why Music Matters series from the University of Texas Press, I believe. Yes, and, um, she, and she was very much part of the No Wave New York scene, you know, with the contortions yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, no, I think she'll be a lot of fun to have on the show. We're looking forward to that. We're very much so. Cool. Everybody can uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all of the latest news. And we have playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can find links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. Because <laughs> we're internationalists. We're, <laughs> we're very sophisticated. <laughs> no, it was called We Couldn't Get the Domain Name for Book Music okay. with a C. <laughs> really, don't say that. <laughs> because broke the trade, trade secrets divulge. <laughs> we're like we're like Dirk Bogard in the Damned or Venice. <laughs> <laughs> music with a K. <laughs> we're so clever, clever with a K. <laughs> well, thank you, Dave, for, for, yes, for participating. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a, a joy to talk about this book and this band. Great. Yeah. So, Great. ladies and gentlemen, we'll be seeing you in the future, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>